This episode of The Interchange is made possible by APSA and Timu. Hello and welcome to episode number five of The Interchange. We're coming to you live from Cliff Central Studios in the heart of Johannesburg. I am your host, Musim Kumbuzi. Now, we've all heard of the term refugee, a person who's forced to flee their country because of conflict, persecution or economic depravity. But what happens to the people who face the same situation and for one reason or another cannot leave their country? Internally displaced people, or IDPs as we will call them in this debate, are people who flee to a different area of the country, perhaps because they are hoping the situation will get better and want to stay close to home or have no means or physical strength to cross the border. Being in the country means that IDPs are still reliant on their own government, making them some of the most vulnerable displaced people in the globe. They also represent the majority of the world's forcibly displaced. Today, there are two times more IDPs than there are refugees. And in South Africa's context specifically, we look at the violent history of division, of discrimination, and the manipulation of the law on a racial basis. Forced removals of various communities throughout the country were undertaken on the basis of this policy. The result, landlessness, Township communities were built on properties that people don't own, limited economic opportunities, and poverty. People were also relocated because the government wanted to alter the ethnic and racial composition of certain areas. Here we mentioned District 6 in the Western Cape. We mentioned Sapphire Town in Gauteng. But today when we look at IDPs, I think we look at areas in the country that are so underdeveloped that people have had no option but to migrate to urban areas where they often live in urban slums, competing for jobs and often living in far worse situations, but at least with a glimmer of hope that they will one day be better off finding a job in the city. Government has an obligation to protect all of its people, and this responsibility covers people who have been arbitrarily displaced from their places of origin. There's also the AU Convention for Internally Displaced Persons and the UN Guiding Principles on Internal Displacement. So in this episode of The Interchange, we do two things. Firstly, we examine whether government has actually exercised its obligation towards IDPs and, if possible, compensated them for their inconveniences and losses. And secondly, we debate an interesting proposition the creation of special economic zones to curb the rise of IDPs in South Africa. In studio with me, I have Bella Mkabela, who is a debater and intersectional feminist. I have Kolwani Dube, who is also a debater and teacher in training. Tristan Marrow, who is a master's in law student, social commentator and future thinker. Eric Kazadi, who is an environmental science student with a passion for Instagram aesthetics. Welcome back. <laughs> and finally, our expert, Elisha Kunene, who is a land lawyer at Richard Spoor Attorneys, a former Concord clerk, also a legal researcher and a prolific debater. Welcome, everyone. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Elisha, I want to start with you. Um, when we look at the internal displacement in Africa, it's fairly easy to analyze. We've seen the history of conflict in countries like Rwanda, but in South Africa, not so much. I've mentioned the history of evacuations, of relocations and evictions, but today we look mostly at economic migration because of things like poverty. I want you to tie that together for us, reflecting specifically on what um, the economic situation has meant for many of the country's people who have moved from rural areas to urban areas and why you think this debate specifically is very important. 
I think yes, it's true that when people study um, internal displacement, they'll focus on things such as conflicts. Uh, for instance, you'll see some studies that say there are 10 million internally displaced people in sub-Saharan Africa, 7.5 is because of war, mm-hmm. and then 2.5 is because of natural disasters, and so they'll just focus on that. And you're right that under that definition of internal displacement, we don't really have that problem in South Africa. Mm-hmm. But as you mentioning that... Being a land lawyer means realizing that there are a lot of people in South Africa who are facing a very similar problem at the abstract level of I do have a home, I do have a place where uh, my community is from, where maybe my ancestors are from, and I'm Mm. forced to leave to another part of the country. Mm. And that place has to know how to absorb me or even think about whether there's a way for me to return home. And I think you've given a very good like exposition of the history and apartheid. At first, it was just like needing people to work in the gold mines. So you tax people back home and then suddenly a million people have to move to Johannesburg. But it is also something which continues to happen even today if you are living as a traditional community and a mining company says there's gold under your land, you need to be moved. The government might decide we want to build a dam, we want to do a project and your community is perfectly located, you need to move. Mm. Uh, Or it could even be something where just like town planning as is still happening in Cape Town, not just the District Mm. 6 Mm. thing. Or, Or... a lot of people having to leave the Eastern Cape to get jobs in other parts of the country and how that affects the province they leave behind, their homes, um, and how the money flows. So it is very important that um, even if we don't have like a war which is driving people from home and we don't have natural disasters, what can we learn from the rest of the world and their conversations Mm, about internal mm, displacement mm. so that we can think about how governments, are not even just national government, but how cities, how municipalities, how provinces can organize the way their cities are built in a way which can absorb people who are arriving, but also when people leave, when like people in, leave, in, in yeah. the Eastern Cape, and then you're counting and you're like, oh, there are few, fewer people in the Eastern Cape, so they get less of the national budget. But sure. those are people who might st- still want to be coming home. It's just a question of like, how do governments organize their society to account for people who are forced to leave home, uh, but still feel displaced in the sense that they still relate to the places that they leave behind. I hope in today's debate, we're going to get some of that sophisticated analysis on specifically how governments can organize special economic zones and what those could do to improve the livelihoods of people, not forgetting that you know, people have already left those areas in any case. But before we get into this debate, let's quickly run through the rules of engagement. As always, we're using the British parliamentary style of debating. We have four debaters, two on each side. And we begin with proposition speaker one and end off with opposition speaker two. Each speaker has four minutes to deliver their speech. The first and the last minutes are protected. But in between then, points of information may be asked. All right, squad, are you ready? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Cool. Yeah, with nothing further to do, I welcome the first speaker of Proposition, Bella. Okay, so I think the unique story about South Africa when we talk about IDPs is not just the idea of being displaced because of economic reasons, but it's also riddled by issues of social issues. So the majority of IDPs being black majority and also women who are not given opportunities to move out of those spaces and realize um, economic means when they go to other cities for like job opportunities and so forth. So when we're talking about IDPs, we're not talking about only economic displacement, we're also talking about social 
social displacements, women being left out of economic zones and being left out of the economic markets as a whole. But moreover, the black majority not having the skills to adapt to the areas that they move to and being um, incorporated into those economic zones that do exist currently. So that's just the idea that we need to understand when we talk about South African IDPs. But when we talk about um, economic zones and what policies South Africa has thus introduced, the uh, most recent policy was published in the tw- um, 2000, in 2007. And in that issue, they think the problem is that economic zones are still being focused in specific cities. So we're talking about Gauteng, Johannesburg, um, we're talking about the Western Cape, um, Cape Town, and we're not seeing enough of economic be- zones being spread out across the country Anna? into other areas, um, like the Northern Cape, like the Eastern Cape that do have potential, that do have the kind of resources and individuals that can participate in making those economic zones, um, worth, um, um, being realized in those areas. We think, therefore, the economic zones need to be spread out across Africa, South Africa, sorry, and not just into specific cities. And those kind of investments and tax breaks being introduced in specific cities and not other countries. But moreover, we think that skills distribution needs to happen, right? It's enough for us to build economic zones where we have businesses thriving. We have um, new industries being formed. We have all these kind of economic growth happening, but not people who can be hired to participate in that economic growth. Here we're talking about the lack of skills being given to the youth, the lack of skills being given to women specifically to participate in economic economic growth, especially in rural areas, especially in country, um, in provinces where we don't have that, um, where we don't have intense economic growth happening like we see in Gauteng and the Western Cape. Therefore, it's not just spreading out to those economic zones, but also those economic zones being mandated to give skills, and I'll take you in a minute, um, Eric, um, being mandated to give skills to specific individuals within those areas so they don't feel the need to leave, don't feel the need to be displaced from those areas because they feel they don't have the ability to give back and they need to go somewhere else to get that. We think we can still get that. Yes, Eric. You need to engage the physical of constructing SEZs in places where there aren't pre-existing economic activity. It's largely going to be difficult to come up with a whole so new firstly, thing. Like the sorry to thing. cut you off. So firstly, we don't think right now in South Africa there's a place where you cannot create economic yeah, opportunity. Yeah. It's impossible. We have um, even rural areas adapting and growing in terms of skills development, in terms of investment. We have amounts of One opportunities happening in rural areas and across not just um, Gauteng and Western Cape. So that's not true. We think anywhere is possible right now in South Africa and building that economic growth and building those kind of resources that we need. We think that it's only just like government concentrating only in specific provinces and not spreading that out. Even if that wasn't true, we think that's the opportunity right now to want to create those opportunities specifically in other provinces. We will never know their potentials until we spread out and actually see what's happening in other provinces besides Gauteng and Western Cape and giving people the reason to stay instead of being displaced into other provinces where we're likely not to achieve what they want to achieve. Thank you so much, Bella, for that speech. We now welcome the first opposition speaker, Tristan. All right. So there's three things that I want to discuss. The first is, do SEZs create economic development? Secondly, will this economic development assist people not becoming uh, internally displaced peoples or IDPs? And finally, is the spreading of kind of economic development across South Africa actually a good thing for South Africa? But Before I get into those three things, I want to speak about something that Bella doesn't even really engage on, which is the fact that 
SEZs themselves actually do create economic, uh, internally displaced people. And they do this firstly by the fact that you have to clear out people from an area to create your SEZ in the first place, right? The same way Elisha speaks about dams and mines kind of clearing out people, SEZs also have to clear out the people already on that land um, to create your SEZ. And even if they don't stay on that land specifically, they might clear them out in other ways with the up. infrastructure to serve that SECs with the highways upgrade, with the road upgrades and rail upgrades. And we already see this happening with the Dubé trade port around King Shaka International, where they had to clear out a bunch of people that were originally on that land. Yes, most of it was sugarcane, but there were still families that lived there that had to be cleared out. So that's the first thing to recognize about how SECs can actually be harmful. The second thing is so to get sorry to get into my questions then the first one being do SEZs create economically de- uh, economic development now I'd concede this on a national level yes SEZs can be effective and useful tools by government to create economic development specifically in attracting foreign direct investment um, we kind of have this already in Pretoria and in PE with the car manufacturers and it can work on a kind of national boosting our GDP. But in terms of the local areas, Tristan, um, especially in rural areas, I'll get you in a moment, Kalwani, um, I would argue that no, they don't actually assist in economic development. And the reason for this kind of starts speaking to my second question in terms of will this economic development assist people in not becoming IDPs? And the reality is that if we create an SEZ, let's say somewhere in the middle of the Northern Cape, one of our most underdeveloped provinces, right? We create an SEZ, maybe close to the um, coast, focusing on trade or whatever it is, right? The reality is that we're probably going to have to import skills into those SEZs because the people staying in those towns probably don't have the high skill needed in that SEZ, which means that the jobs that you're offering to the people that are already there are probably low-skilled or unskilled labor to start with, right? The second thing is, and this is perhaps something my proposition would bring up, is that if we have them in the areas... South African law will then require that these international companies coming in help develop the communities around them. We already do this with the mines, right? Great. So they start building schools. They start building clinics and stuff like that. One minute left. What that does is it upskills the people in that area so that they're now higher skilled, have higher needs, and thus start looking to move away anyway because they don't see the – the opportunities in their local area. And then finally, spreading economic developments in South Africa isn't necessarily a good thing. There's a reason it's located in central hubs, and the reason for that is it brings the cost down and it makes us more competitive. We don't want to make ourselves uncompetitive when we're already likely to be battling against things like uh, countries like China or India. We want to make it as the opportunities as great as possible for these foreign companies to come in and invest in us and making them now have to include higher transport costs or higher development costs is not going to help us in that regard. SEZs might be brilliant on paper to help economic development, but that doesn't mean that they help IDPs. In fact, they'll likely make it worse for them. Thank you so much, Tristan. Now to welcome our second proposition speaker to rebut and to extend their case, Kolwani. Welcome. Right. So the first thing that we need to understand from Tishan's speech is that he's just lying, right? Yeah, yeah. Because let's speak Shame. about 
what oh. internal displacement is. Because when we're specifically looking at what SEZs do, is that they are upskilling individuals within those areas at the worst. At the best, we are creating jobs for individuals there. And I'll get to that in my speech. But firstly, let me do a, a couple of things to tell you why specifically things that Tristan said in his speech were just not true, right? Because when we speak specifically about spreading development, let's look at that South African context. Because he wants to tell you and give you this picture of a society that says that, look, um, we're at a point where South Africa needs to keep some of its economic infrastructure in certain areas yeah, because yeah. that grows its economic hubs and things like that. To be implicit with you, this is specifically speaking about a country that has a backbone or a backlog of individuals who do not have jobs. Most of South Africa's money goes towards the unemployed, to the pensioners, to the grant earners. This means that the creating of of, of sectors and zones that can create that economic access for individuals in rural area is the best thing economically for South Africa as a country. Mm -hmm. It removes the burden of individuals who cannot provide for themselves and it is not their fault but the fault of the state and this is how the state needs to provide. But secondly, the most important thing that we need to note in this debate is that people are being displaced regardless of our policy being enacted uh, firstly is that there is already a displacement that exists so we need to ask ourselves one important question how how are we dealing with this displacement if we are at all because what we get from opposition is this idea that this displacement gets worse we tell you that no at best we can create an opportunity for 10 to 50 people who need jobs at worst we can create the upskilling those schools that Tristan tries yeah. to make seem like it's not so important. We tell you that's very important on, eh? given the dropout rates, given the and individuals who do not have the particular skills to become economic players in the first place. This is very important and I'll take uh, you Tristan now. Yes. Okay to our already existing economic hubs and that's helping the millions of unemployed in Kailicha or Alexandra or Kwamashu. Why does it need to be in rural South Africa? Okay. Why can't it be near here's existing why it economics? needs to be in rural South Africa because here's the important fact that we need to know about today's debate. It, it, it is that in areas that are like Gauteng, Johannesburg, this is the city of gold. It is also a jungle where people are literally either going to make it or fail. This means that most likely individuals are not even looked after. What we do when we place it in the Northern Cape is we say that you don't even have to leave that area because most likely you can get that access there. Most likely that individual couldn't even leave the Northern Cape to enter Johannesburg because of the economic sector, what it requires in terms of the housing and the pricing that exists in those areas, those overpopulated areas that we speak One about already. Left. If we're speaking about benefiting South Africa as a whole, specifically from what we get from Tristan's speech, then this therefore means that we should create these areas in places where it's firstly accessible for that individual who needs that job at that current moment, but it's also accessible for the upskilling of individuals who need those jobs. We tell you that SEZs do do some benefit to those individuals, and if we are Benefiting internally displaced people We tell you that we are the best side for today's debate Thank you so much for that speech And I now welcome the second speaker of opposition To close their case as well as close the debate Here, here, Eric
Um, thank you. So in this speech, I'm going to do three things, right? The first, I'm going to disprove this claim that the spreading out of economic activity is actually beneficial. But secondly, I'm going to extend our case and tell you why SCZs are also unsustainable and also are likely to lead to adverse harms, particularly looking at like things like environmental harm in the long term. So the first thing we hear from our proposition side is largely about spreading out economic activity so that individuals don't have to move as far to get jobs. This is really problematic. We think that if you look in any country, firstly, there's usually a concentration of economic activity in certain nodes. This is important because it means there's like limited costing in terms of having to build up the, uh, like to build up the area, attract businesses there and things like that. So largely what the, what the construction of like an SEZ, uh, of an, yeah, SEZ in a place like the Northern Cape would require is actually going to cause mass displacement as Tristan already alluded to because this means not only does the corporation have to like Act, like create activity there, but they also have to like build the infrastructure to support that. It's often easier to build on existing infrastructure than Eric. to have to create this whole infrastructure from scratch. This is true because if you look in countries that have tried to implement SEZs at a broad scale, we look at countries like India and it's like southern states. We look at countries like Myanmar and Burma. What is oftentimes resulted in is the mass displacement of those vulnerable people that Bella wants to speak Eric. of. People Eric. like women who oftentimes have to now have to vacate these lands and vacate like what their kinds of economic activities that they would do there in any instance. So they create more dis uh, more dis more displacement on their side. But secondly though, we think SEZs actually take up a lot of state resources and state attention because now they oftentimes All have right. to create things like I'll take you guys like in a minute or, t or so with like extra um legislative support for these businesses. So this means a lot of state attention is actually diverted towards making sure that like they lack economic um, lack economic policies, they become things like a tax haven and stuff like that. And this means that even these economic benefits that they try to argue for can aren't actually Please, as true Eric. as they would like us to believe. But lastly, we think that there isn't as much um skills development as they would like to claim. And I'll talk more about this after okay. yeah, I'll take one of you guys so now. Let's speak about the employment incentive tax breaks that exist for these companies that would form in these SEZ areas. Doesn't that ensure that there is employment for that individual? That so there's employment, about? but as a menial laborer, right? So there's oftentimes that skills mismatch Eric. from what you want to talk about. So if we're talking about things like a mine or like a port and things like that, at best, what they'll hire individuals as are like to be menial workers, which is something that they could have even like gotten had they moved to like Johannesburg and things like that. So there isn't that great skills uh, upliftment as we would like to talk about because of the historic skills mismatch. So you aren't going to have like economically empowered individuals. No, you guys are lying. But lastly though, we think that... um there's SEZs actually, SEZs are actually more harmful in the long term. So because they're largely highly industrialized things. So it's things like mining, it's things like ports and stuff like that. These have a huge environmental impact. So Eric. if you're talking about the long term, we're thinking that current like economic, uh, like environmental situations left. that we're facing, you're actually worse for these individuals in the long term. You end up creating a lot more massive, like environmentally displaced individuals in the long term. They aren't very sustainable. What's the most sustainable alternative? We think like states support of things like SMEs, state support of things like encouraging tourism to places like Northern Cape that aren't industrialized is actually going to be a, ben a better option. So you allow for 
grassroots development of these communities without having these massive corporations coming in using people as literal like father to feed their minds and lastly damaging the environment there in the long term we think SSAs are largely like exaggerated and their benefits aren't true from the proposition side so yes we think that it's not good to spread them out you aren't going to create this massive benefit that they talk about but also in the long term they are vastly unsustainable Thank you so much, both sides, for those passionate speeches. But I want to take it to our expert, Elisha, and ask him, what do you think happened in today's debate in terms of the sides um, that were presented, but also how do you think this helps us think of the issue of special economic zones in South Africa? Uh, so I think, of course, uh, all of the speakers are brilliant, uh, some of the best competitive debaters in the country. I'm glad I didn't have to debate mm-hmm. the topic because <laughs> it's just such an incredibly like difficult question. And this was always only going to be the beginning of a conversation and not something yeah. that can be resolved. I think the, the, the way we see that is because a lot of the teams on both sides end up accusing each other of lying. Like, <laughs> no, we're not going to be doing that. We're going to be doing this. We're not going to be doing that. We're going to be doing this. Because in reality, if you had to have a special economic zone, the law would be at least 200 pages. Mm. And then you'd have to get into the specifics of, are we offering tax breaks? Are we forcing people to be educated? Are we making laws about who you can and cannot hire there? What actually does the special economic zone look like? And that's very difficult because in the last election we had, I think, as far as manifestos went, the EFF really prioritized saying that if we get elected into government, we're going to build special economic zones mm-hmm. in Limpopo, in the Eastern Cape, and pick one or two areas. And they say we're going to do these specific things. And like one of the public debates I was at, they were saying, but if you're giving tax breaks mm-hmm. to big companies, then how are you going to regulate them to make sure they're not just as exploitative as mining companies mm-hmm. and aren't you giving away tax money, which could be spent on other things. And they were good answers. But I mean, these are conversations which are just starting and they're happening at a big political level. So I think the benefit of a debate like this is you have like four very smart people who at a high level try to help you understand like the give and take that even when you're trying to create education, the costs could possibly be that you are actually locking people into the place uh, where they have now and I guess the trade-off of having a job at home or perhaps having a better job in Johannesburg, the costs there and um, like the arguments themselves were like very interesting. And I think there's a lot of strength on both sides. But if anyone was listening, I think that gives you a window into starting to think specifically about what types of specific laws, what types of specific zoning regulations would you like to see more in rural areas and what type would you like to see less of or more of in the cities and how that plays itself out. But like I say, that was not a question that could possibly be resolved in so short a time period. So if we buy Proposition's argument that we, we should build special economic zones in rural areas, where would what kind of incentives would be created for the foreign and domestic companies that have to invest because they they don't just come from government and how would you make sure from a regulatory point of view that you account for some of the dangers that um Eric spoke about that have to do with environmental degradation or unfair labor practices that that are often um marginalizing those same vulnerable people that we care about in today's debate so i think what was mentioned in the beginning and which is interesting is that when we speak about um particularly the Northern Cape and the Eastern Cape, that we have far less people 
in terms of populations in those kind of provinces. So we significantly have more places and more um, um, opportunity to build kind of industries without having to displace a lot of people. If you're literally wanting to invest in Gauteng, you have to move a lot of people in a specific area. Whereas in the Eastern Cape, Northern Cape, we have that space. We have those kind of open areas where we don't displace as much people as we would um, would be talking about like Gauteng, where it's incredibly dense. There's a lot of people. There's not a lot of places to start building. But also, um, just in general, there's more opportunities. It's um, like less competition, less already in the, um, 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 already established businesses there. So you're creating your own industrial revolution, industrial zones, your own brand new places to establish, um, businesses and establish new ideas and formulate that. That is different from the already existing, incredibly dense, um, areas that we see in Gauteng and Western Cape. And that's why I think it's interesting. When Eric talks about environmental, um, issues, I think firstly, like, um, we mentioned, there, there are ways to create laws and, um, regulations to kind of like hinder, uh, immense environmental, um, regulations. But also, when we're talking about industrialization, there's no way we're not going to be harming um, the economy. There's no way to kind of like run away from that kind of consequence. It's going to happen in any case. The best way we can um, assist is try to regulate that harm, that it's not as bad in in a way that years from now, we cannot build anything else from that place because of the kind of environmental damage that we have. But it's something we can't avoid. Um, Industrial countries like China and the USA haven't avoided it. They can't do it anyway. So there's definitely no way to avoid environmental. We can just try to regulate harm that doesn't last for years and years. And we need to prioritize. We need to be prioritizing economic growth. Yeah, yeah. We need to be prioritizing um, establishment employment over a tree, unfortunately. Yeah. Interesting. Um, you know, interesting and direct response to that. You talk about a new displacement problem that uh, special economic zones present. Um, but that makes us think, you know, um, about levels of displacement. And if the problem is perhaps not necessarily displacement, but to the de- the degree to which that displacement happens, I think that is an aspect of the debate that we need to analyze, especially considering that this debate is is largely based on government compensating people who have been displaced. So if government provides, you know, alternative housing, for instance, would you then say, um, you know, propositions model could be beneficial to South Africa? Or do you still maintain that we need to look at alternatives? It's a difficult catch-22, right? Because, uh, you know, the other aspect to this is also that Johannesburg was often seen as kind of, you know, the land of opportunity. You would move here, find a job, kind of uh, help your family upskill. But uh, the problem is that there's so many people now in Johannesburg that we don't really have the capacity to bring in more people. We can barely give enough opportunity to the people already here. So there is that problem that we have, right? So then how do we solve that? Do we develop rural areas so that people don't have to move here? Do we try and uh, develop here so that we have more capacity to take people? here and it's it's a difficult problem to solve i think the reality of the fact though is we have to be cognizant of a number of different factors we have to be cognizant of our position on the world stage how we keep ourselves competitive as i mentioned earlier we also have to be cognizant though you know the pella says this you know we have to prioritize people over a tree but the reality is that you know if the tree dies so do we later when we don't have oxygen so we do also need to be <laughs> cognizant of things like that it's and it's a very difficult problem i definitely do not envy the people in government having to make decisions like this but at the same time I don't think trying to create specifically SEZs 
is the way forward. And one of the reasons for this is it will take massive government investment to try and create SEZs that are attractive enough for companies to move to Uppington, for example, whereas there is already that attractiveness here in Gauteng or in KZN. So, I mean, if you're presenting an organization with monopoly control over a specific economy because they're, they're the first mover in that economy, for example, you're offering a, an automotive giant like BMW, you know, space and control to build essentially the first automotive factory in, in a particular community. Isn't that incentive enough? So the issue is you could create the incentive, yes. At the same time, you have to offset the cost of them now having to ship all their machinery and stuff to Uppington as opposed to just doing it in PE where they already have all the infrastructure. Um, you have to make sure that it's incentivized them enough to also import the managers and the high-skilled labor that they would need. So there's a massive cost to make it attractive enough to get them. And I'm sure you could – you know. With enough money, you could solve most problems. The problem is we don't have enough money. So how do we prioritize that money? Do we prioritize it in creating these SEZs or do we prioritize it in maybe spending a little bit there in PE to make it a little bit more attractive to ensure they stay and then using the rest of the money that we would have spent on trying to get into Uppington on rather building schools or upgrading the road infrastructure in Alexandra. The problem is it's how do we allocate those resources that we have in a way that is most effective and I think honestly the the cost of trying to do SEZs in rural areas is just too high compared to the potential gains we could use from using that those resources. It sounds like the yeah. the two of you are getting onto a a slippery slope where you you, you might be perceived as saying that displacement is a part of life, mm. uh, particularly in the twenty first century, and that we need to embrace it and create strategies to work around it. But it's always going to happen. Is that what you're saying? So, to some extent, yes, but also not like holistically. So, I think. The key thing that we argue also is that like the prioritization of SEZs is something that's going to create more dis more displacement than actually curb that displacement, mm. which is the problem of the debate, right? That's what we're trying to solve. Do we solve how do we solve like displacement of individuals? Do we use SEZs as a particular mechanism of doing this? And what we say here is that that's really realistically not true because what happens is, so in the best case of propositions case is that they, you know, they do get some sort of economic gain, but also I do argue how this is unlikely to be sustainable because you do create that environmental derogation. And this is key because I think I would caution against personally, like prioritizing industrialization as the only means of economic development. Like that, that has been a narrow thinking, like the narrow type of thinking that a lot of states and governments have prioritized. And we've seen now and we are seeing now that it's leading to adverse outcomes for these individuals right yeah. because there's always like a ceiling with industrialization but beyond that there's like real human cost that mm. comes with that industrialization so on a comparative it's I think marginally better to try and prioritize where you already have existing infrastructure than to try and bring in other people because there's also limited like legislation legislation that we can do to protect individuals protect environmental costs because Inherent to a special economic zone is lack strict regulation. That's the only way you overcome the cost of having to move your operations at a massive scale to a new underdeveloped area. So there's no way of doing this realistically while still being able to maintain like a good control over the laws of your country like that similar standard. So sure. I think they create, so like it's worse. It, displacement happens, but it happens more 
if we actually prioritize special economic zones. And, and just quickly, Kolwani, your side, does it take care of people that are already displaced? Because it seemed like the, the focus mostly looked at, looked at the people who haven't left yet. What happens to the people who have already left? Um, so let's think about it like this. When a person says, I'm going to Johannesburg, I'm going to find a job, I'm going to live yeah. the dream. And we've all heard that. Most likely they get there and they yeah. don't live that dream. They don't get that opportunity. It usually means that they often find themselves in the outskirts of that economy of Johannesburg. What we are saying, and as proposition throughout the debate, what we're trying to get to is by shifting away the attention, by shifting away that economic uh, like money or like that value that exists into like a place like the Northern Cape, it means that that person in those outskirts of Johannesburg who is already displaced can move, can move to an area where they are now having an bigger opportunity because truth be told Johannesburg is too small for the number of individuals in this country who want to get those opportunities let us let us even look at schooling systems let us look at how many schools exist in Johannesburg and how many of those students actually get noticed even if they are top achievers but then let's look at other provinces and the focuses when we say that here's the top 10% most likely that looks like um, more of a reach for those kids and more attention that's given throughout that province. That's the reality of it, that the more people in one area, even if it does continue growing Johannesburg as an economic zone, means less people have more money and it's just a concentration of wealth on the few minority while the majority is suffering on the outskirts. And that's mm. what we are trying to do here because... Realistically speaking, we understand there's a trade-off that will always exist. There's a trade-off of what gain can we have. Like, we understand when Eric speaks about the environmental impacts that this has. Do we say that because we need to take care of a tree that we will let you starve and what happens to you? Like, that is the trade-off that needs to exist. Yeah. Specifically, when you first need to build to make... And that's where we are, is developing countries. I've got you, and... Elisha, I want to give you the the last word on this debate and specifically on this trade-off that we, we face as a, uh, as a developing country. I think, again, it's... Well, the difficult thing is debating it as if you can have a solution which works countrywide is difficult because, like, the contexts are so different place to place. And even when there is a solution, like sometimes just to get a fair deal out of it is something which is incredibly difficult, which is why like a lot of the work we do as land lawyers like is driving to a distant corner of the country just to listen to people and what it is that's happening to them because they're not as well covered by the media and it's and they don't always have as much of a voice. They're not as active on Twitter and stuff like that. And it's difficult to actually know the way things are working from them. And so we'd always start there and ask a lot of questions before thinking about what specific solution can be tailored to that area because South Africa is huge uh, like it's huge geographically but it's also almost every province is different um, and which is why like these are only decisions that can be made largely there'll be some national policies but largely city by city you have to ask yourself these difficult questions municipality by municipality provincial government and so um, different 
areas in South Africa would listen to different points made um, in this debate and say that actually would work for us, even if it wouldn't work elsewhere. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's why it's important to, when you're thinking about like displacement, start pushing the conversation to a more localized level. Let mm-hmm. more communities speak for themselves. Let more communities say, well, this is how many trees we have to spare. Mm-hmm. Uh, and this is, <laughs> this is how many more schools we need. And then actually working from the ground up as opposed to just thinking about it as a like a, a national policy debate which is more about like ideology so I think that, that that's important that the conversation starts but that at least the conversation is spread to have as many like diverse types of voices because you'd just be so shocked at how differently the economy in Limpopo works to Mpumalanga which is right next door um, versus the Western Cape which is almost completely different um, and I think that that's something that's just like really important and something that where you should also like start listening to the people in power who are, who are having conversations like this and who are making specific decisions about what laws to apply where how to zone different areas how to prioritize their spending um and the, for me i think that's a reason that this debate has been very interesting even though we already think about these issues a lot it's a very difficult topic indeed and one that you know requires so much more time um to properly look at. But one thing that I think we can all take away from this is that internal displacement is historical. And in South Africa, it's systematic. There were no displacement camps like in other African countries, but people were evicted from their homes. People were relocated. People were uh, moved away in, 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 uh, in this big racial system that privileged some and disadvantaged others. And most of the places that they were relocated to lacked necessary amenities, such as water, housing, sanitation. And consequently, those people are still reeling from the effects of such displacements. Homelands are disintegrated. Townships remain a remnant of apartheid South Africa. But a vast majority um, of the people that we need to look at, and that we did look at, in fact, in today's debate, is rural South Africa. It's a part of, of our country that is often overlooked in this conversation about internal displacement. And we've heard ideas around rural development. We've heard it from political parties. We've heard it in the media, from um, economists. But the irony in in, in rural development, as we've so uh, passionately heard in this debate, is that the process of making some people's lives better is traditionally centered around the exploitation of natural resources, the exploitation of people. But I hold that this is not uh, something that is inevitable. I hold that... Um, with enough reimagining of economic zones, of economic development in general as a broad term, we can lead truly as a country and we can lead the continent, by example, because to qualify as a leading economy, people should be living um, within acceptable standards. And this includes people who have been displaced because it's not by their own doing, which directly makes their business, their livelihood, government's business. So we hope that this conversation has triggered deeper, think, deeper thinking rather about compensating people who are displaced. And we hope that you listening to the show today are very excited about the future of policymaking around this area in particular. That was The Interchange. See you next time. This was another thought-provoking debate made possible by APSA and Simon, amplifying the voices of young people. The Interchange. Seeing Africa through a youthful lens.